You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please help out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Right, we did not have a podcast last week because I was away, but we're going to do two episodes in one podcast today. But before we get started, let me get in another plug right here off the top for our Patreon page. Uh, again, if you think that this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, you'd like to see the podcast keep going strong and remain as ad-free as possible, please consider becoming a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Uh, patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. I love that chat. It is so much fun. Uh, but speaking of which, you know, we need a couple more patrons to come on there. You guys get involved here. And if you can't get on involved during the airing you know if you got time the next day to write your comments or whatever drop them in there so all the patrons can see it and so i could use them here on the show which i absolutely love to do so as long as you get those comments on even after the show's done go to the discussion for the episode you're looking for and uh you know as long as you get the comments in by the end of the day on wednesday i probably can get them in the show i'm usually not recording until wednesday night or thursday morning uh anyway again Go to patreon.com slash Island. sign up, support the podcast. It's only five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. I just want to thank Rob, our new patron this week. Uh, thank you so much, sir, for, uh, for joining up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of the family here. Uh, your support means everything to me. And it also, if you prefer not to do the monthly thing on Patreon, um, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. You can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride. Uh, I'm a musician by trade, and uh, that's you know what they call the virtual tip jar there and the only way I really have set up to do it. Um, and thank you to everyone who has supported the show. Uh, and thank you to everyone who has uh, donated so generously been part of the patreon it's been such a great thing to once we started doing this um to really kind of get a community going here thank you guys so much anyway as always even though we have two episodes to get to we do have some emails and stuff to get to as well so let's get started right there now before I begin uh, reading off the emails, I did get an email this week from a listener who asked me for some Oak Island book recommendations so I thought I'd answer it here um because I thought there might be somebody, more people out there who might be interested in looking for a good book uh, to dive a little deeper into the Oak Island mystery. Uh, there are so many. Um, some are, are better than others. Uh, what I would say is for a good one book to read, for an introduction to the treasure hunt and its history and kind of touching on some of the theories and stuff, I'd probably start off with Darcy O'Connor's The Secret Treasure of Oak Island. It really is the best way to learn about you know, what happened on Oak Island before the Laginas got there, you know? So if you're, uh, if you're a, um, specifically a fan of the show and you have been since the beginning, Darcy O'Connor's book's a great way to kind of catch up on everything up to that point. Um, he goes into some theories, like I said, and such, but, uh, if you're looking to know more about the who, what, where, and when, as Rick likes to say of the treasure hunt, that's a great first book. Um, 
If you want something perhaps a little bit more current, but kind of along the same lines, something that includes the current fellowship team here, then Randall Sullivan's uh, sort of official book, The Curse of Oak Island, is also very, very good. Um, I, a lot of people criticize it because it is sort of the official Prometheus book, but it's incredibly well written, and he does offer some theory stuff in there as well. Um, those are two good places to kind of start with learning the history and learning um, really, you know, not diving too deep into a single theory, which is what a lot of books are about. All right, sort of along the same lines. For people just wanting a bit more, but not looking to really dive deep and not really to get too deep into a single theory, but want to learn more about the theories that are out there. Maybe somebody who's tired of hearing just about the Templars or the uh, or the Portuguese, uh, then I would recommend John Bell's book, Oak Island Illustrated. It's a real easy read. It's a beautiful book, it's sort of a coffee table size. And what makes it really cool is it also gives a very short and objective synopsis of the many theories that have been part of the Oak Island legend over the centuries of the mystery. Probably my favorite read of all, though, um, if you're looking just for one based on how great a read it is, I would say it's The Oak Island Obsession, The Rest All Story by Lee Lamb. As I'm sure you can figure out, it only focuses on the amazing and yet tragic story of the Rest All family's years digging on the island. It paints an incredibly vivid picture of life on the island and gives a an really cool insight into the mind of a treasure hunter as well. You're not going to get much about the history of Oak Island or theories or anything like that. So if that's what you're interested in, I would start somewhere else. But if you read one of those and just want a great book to read about Oak Island, this is the one. It is such a great book. It really, you'll, you'll love that one. And finally, there are a lot of theory books out there, right? And by that, I mean there are books written really just to sort of expand on the author's theory or uh, you know hypothesis of what might have happened on Oak Island. The entire James McQuiston series of books <laughs> about his theories are fantastic reading. You're, you're, you're going to go through them and you're going to be like, what? <laughs> and also Gordon Fader, Joy Steele's Oak Island Mystery Solved, the final chapter, is probably the best one uh, if you want to get beyond what the show is willing to show you and tell you and get into a theory that is not treasure related, but yet very intriguing and incredibly well-researched. That's one I would do. There are many, 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 many other theory books. I know there are, and I'm sure that I've got people out there telling me, why didn't you say this one? Um, especially if you're interested in the Templar angle. There are just so many of those. But I would really start with those two. I'd start with Gordon Fader's book and James McQuiston's. And if you, James, he's got a lot of books, you know, get the last two or three. I think that really is kind of hones in on what he's getting at there. Um, I hope that helps. And if anyone has any other suggestions, you know, if, if I'm missing one, just email them to me, okay? Island at gmail.com, and I'll read them out here. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, on some of those books, because there are just so, so many. I know Mark Finnan's book. Uh, I'm looking back at my uh, <laughs> my bookshelf. There's just so many of them back there. So, But those are the ones that stand out. Just without really thinking more than just off the top of my head when I got this email, those are the ones that stand out to me as my faves. All right. Let's go to an email now. This is from Maura, who writes, Dave, I just had to tell you that last week I went back to the show. The podcast has re-sparked my interest in more than your discussion about the show. Maybe it's just my perspective, but this season is actually interesting. 
Anyway, just wanted you to know that you're respinning the yarn in a way that got me back to the History Channel. I wish the History Channel thought more of us fans of the mystery. When they were digging out the pottery and talking of the history of these pieces, it was fascinating. I think we all love it. Maybe Laird should have his own show, Excavating Oak Island. Thanks, Maura. Maura, thank you for the kind words and for the email. I agree, man. Uh, so far, this show has been this season has been really good. I've been really into it, you know, and I've been saying this for some time now. The show should really stop. We're going to get back to this in a bit. The show should really stop trying to find something every episode. I think that is really the main driver behind what people are criticizing. Stop focusing on every sort of borderline mundane find that Gary pulls out um, and spend more time on history and theory. Stop chopping these theorist scenes down to nothing. Stop chopping these history scenes. Let Laird speak. This is the stuff people are fascinated by. Not an Akshu, you know. Anyway, over the last couple of seasons, the stuff about Portugal and those sorts of things have been by far the most interesting stuff to watch um, and not, you know, another... Bobby Dazzler that turns out to be nothing, which we see so many of. Again, I'm going to get back to this later on in the show. So thanks again, Maura. Great stuff. Let's go now to Stacy, who says, are you old enough to have heard the song, The Ballad of Billy Jack? My prediction, the treasure found will turn out to be brotherly love and the fellowship of the dig. I enjoy the discussion and the show is fun. Stacy, Stacy, thank you so much for writing and thanks for listening. And um, I think you're talking about the One Tin Soldier song. I have heard it. Uh, it's been many, many years. Uh, it's from a movie, right? The reason Stacy asks is because this, the song is about buried treasure. I, I, assuming I'm thinking of the right thing. And with regards to the treasure, it sure is starting to look more and more like that might be all they find here, right? But let's hope we're wrong. Let's hope, let's hope this isn't right. You know, they, they find something. I think the treasure, in my mind, and I've said this a bunch of times, and other people have said this too, it's almost a cliche now, but really is just finding out what actually happened here. Um, what went on in Oak Island that for some reason or another has been lost to history. I have not been convinced from the very beginning that there is still a treasure waiting down there somewhere. Now, I'll tell you this, the water testing stuff has me scratching my head a bit because they're not really informing us on exactly what this all means and letting us compare it to other things. So we just sort of have to rely on what we're hearing secondhand here. And it's making me doubt myself a little, a little bit that maybe there is something down there. Um, it's important to understand there was a money pit. It collapsed. There's a lot of stuff going on down below. Uh, it could be anywhere. Who knows, you know, but it's starting to, uh, to seem more and more with every passing hole and can and all this stuff that a treasure is less likely as they seem to find no evidence of such a thing down there other than these very sort of nebulous water tests. But let's see how it all plays out. Anyway, great stuff, Stacy. Now let's go to Mike on Facebook, who has a very different perspective on this. Mike says, hey, Dave, might be wishful thinking and nothing more, but I feel like those of us who have stuck it out this far might finally get some payoff for our hundreds of hours invested in the show and the hunt. I'm mesmerized by whatever is happening under that tree and down that well, and I love that the scientists are getting so much more airtime lately. I can't get enough of Helen, Miriam, and Doctors Brousseau and Zhang. As far as Gary, I used to love seeing him on screen because he was the only one on the show with any discernible personality, but he has become a parody of himself. I imagine when the lunch delivery person arrives each day, he probably pumps his fists and says, tacos, baby. 
while everyone else rolls their eyes. Uh, I think I remember an article that spoke to uh, the Mi'kmaq written language. A monk or priest interpreted the figures that they used. There is some debate as to it being an actual written language. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, please do so, Mike. And, you know, you're not wrong on on this stuff. Uh, They have been showing us some more of the archaeologists and the scientists. That is good. Again, I'm going to go back to the Gary thing a little bit. Um, I, I think something that I've been thinking about for a long time is starting to become more of a popular feeling. And I, I agree with you. I, I like Gary, um, but he, it is sort of becoming almost a little too much of that for a lot of reasons. Again, I'll get to it later. Um, and I assume the Mi'kmaq thing you're talking about has to relate with the carvings on the stones found a couple episodes back. Uh, really cool stuff. Those are, and we've got, we're looking into it a little bit. It certainly seems like some of this could be Mi'kmaq, um, I don't doubt that at all at this point. Now, let me just add this to that discussion about the Mi'kmaq writing. Um, Last time on our last podcast, when we were discussing this scene with Corey and Maul and the carving in the stone and what it may or may not be, a listener named Billy pointed out the the, the possibility of the Mi'kmaq and gave us some pictures and things. And Corian actually wrote back and said, kudos to Billy. Well, well spotted. And then he wrote this. He said, my pleasure. I, I thanked him for, uh, for commenting for us. He said, we considered Mi'kmaq too, which I should have mentioned for you. Um, same with the alchemical symbols, treasure symbols, and a few others. But in the end, it is, as you say, it is impossible to draw any kind of conclusion. We weren't there when these were carved. I am undecided as to what they are, as to the dating. It's uh, it's next to impossible to date a rock carving on its own. From the patina, you can see that these are old, but how exactly how old is impossible to say. Probably hundreds of years and much older is possible too. So it's really important that he that Corian followed up on that for us because listen to what he said here. He mentioned those things. He talked about those possibilities. It didn't make the show. <laughs> Instead, the only thing that did was the Templar stuff. So you see what happens. This is why it's so vitally important that we are able to reach out to some of these theories, theorists. And how much better would it have been for all of us if we got to hear all of that and got to decide on our own? That's what we want. That's what makes a mystery mysterious. Instead of somebody trying to just push us in one direction, which sometimes I think they might do. Anyway, Mike, thank you so very, very much for writing. I do have, I wanted to get to a, um, since we're on the subject of Gary quite a bit, uh, Dave on the Facebook page, he wrote us, um, ever notice that when Gary pulls something out of the ground and tells us what it is, in this case, hinge of some sort, then Carmen Carmen Leg tells us it was part of a scythe, they don't correct Gary. He must hate that. Makes him look like he's not the expert they make him out to be. Um... Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. Uh, part of what the problem could be, right, is we don't know, again, just from looking at the Corian, what Corian wrote us there, we don't know what he actually said. We know what we see in the final cut. And he does tend to look like he is very sure of what it might be, or he, you know, I don't... <laughs> I don't want to accuse him of anything, but, uh, you know, maybe he would be better saying, you know, to me, this looks like this could be, you know, put in some more of could be's and I don't know, maybe it looks like this, Uh, you know, 
Because, yeah, a lot of times he does come out wrong. I don't want to see them go back and tell him he's wrong. I mean, that doesn't uh, that doesn't accomplish anything. I'd feel terrible for him. Um, but, yeah, they do oftentimes kind of leave him hanging out there to look like he's just incorrect. Anyway, let's finish up. Thanks, everybody. Let's finish up with Ginger, who said, Wasn't Captain Anderson the one whose ship's log said they would dig a deep pit near the shore, et cetera, et cetera? This well... Could be his deep pit, hence the silver being hidden therein. What about that? What do you think? If the History Channel was smart, they would use the Digging Deeper shows as a place to show the stuff on the cutting room floor, rather than replaying the exact same show with a few little blips on the bottom right and Maddie Blake pushing opinions and faking excitement over everything, every little thing we've been told. Why don't, the, why don't they listen to the viewers' requests, Ginger? Okay, Ginger. Quickly from the bottom here. Um... I, I don't know why they don't. We've been saying these same requests for a long time. I would love a show sort of after the episode, of maybe some interviews with what we see, some extra scenes. We would love all of that. Um, I'd love for them to slow down and take their time sometimes. They seem to be just going from thing to thing, you know. But um, they think they have a formula here, and the ratings bear the success of that, I think. So that's my guess. Now, as far as the Captain Anderson thing, I think you're thinking of the Duke Donville. Actually, I believe that it was a ship that was um, from a ship's log that was out ahead of the Donville expedition. All right. So let's back up a bit and quickly go over this again, just so you understand what Ginger and I are talking about here. The theory is um, that the French lost uh, launched an armada in 1746 under the command of a man named, and I love this name, Jean-Baptiste Louis Frédéric de la Rochefoucauld, or less flamboyant, flamboyantly known just as the Duc d'Anville. Um, this fleet was supposed to go back and engage the British and try to take um, Nova Scotia back from the British. It never succeeded. Um, it was bested mostly by things like scurvy and storms. But according to this theory, they buried their treasure, which an army would need to carry. So it's not really treasure. It's more like funding. <laughs> they need to carry that to fund itself as they're doing what they're doing. Um, and especially since they're so far from their home, they kind of need to carry a lot of it, right? Because they're going to be away for a long time. So what, they, what the theory says is this Vanguard ship uh, got knocked off course or whatever it might be. And they buried it in Nova Scotia, whatever they had to hide it from the British. Now the ship's log is what Doug Kroll read for us a few seasons back. And I think that's what you're referencing here, Ginger, when it said it has been agreed that a deep pit be dug and treasure securely buried the pit to have a secret entrance by a tunnel from the shore with 200 men. We estimate work can be finished in less than 13 days. Soil seems free from rocks. Work began on pit 12 uh, on pit 12 feet in diameter. Again, the idea was that this was a ship that was off on its own, carrying the money for the expedition. It either got separated in the fleet or, or perhaps it was out on its own so it wouldn't be detected by the British and be part of an engagement. Um, anyway, Ginger, I believe this is what you're thinking of here. And what I would say is that this is um, this well project continues. Keep an eye on it because you might be onto something here. Keep an eye on how the dating information that we're going to hear here and how what the scientists say and the dates that they give us, how this relates to this theory. Now, Captain James Anderson, for those of you who don't remember, was a privateer who was originally um, originally fought on the side of the Americans, the colonies, during the American Revolution. 
but he turned coat and uh, fought for the British later in the war. After the war, he moved to Nova Scotia, as so many loyalists did, and then he settled there. He purchased Lot 26 on Oak Island in 1788 and died only a few years later, 1796. I hope that answers all of your questions, Ginger. Uh, Now, like I said, keep a weather eye out for this one. I like what you're on to here. All right, that's all for the emails this week. Let's take a break and come back with our review of episodes 12 and 13. So here is the plan for today's podcast. Since we didn't have a show last week because I was, I mean, I'm going to admit it, partying in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm going to discuss both season 10, episode 12 and episode 13. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put them together and follow each project through both episodes rather than do one at a time. We're going to go through it and so we can follow kind of a longer timeline of each project. All right, let's begin with the money pit. Neither episode 12 or 13 really spent all that much time at the money pit, if I'm honest. In episode 12, which was called Beware the Blob, the guys are beginning to do some core drilling in the area dubbed the Blob, the spot where Dr. Ian Spooner told them the source of precious metal in the waters testing he's done uh, might be found. We see Rick, Marty, and Doug Kroll, Terry Matheson, they're joined by Dr. Spooner, as the guys are drilling a hole labeled DN13. Now, later in the episode, Charles Barkhouse and Paul Troutman are checking over the core samples. They get a little wood at the depth of 93 and a half feet. So in episode 13, when we see more water testing being done, this time with Paul and uh, the swamp doctor, Dr. Spooner, we just sort of get this quick scene showing them taking water out of a drill hole. But in neither of these episodes do we get any results from this or any hypothesis or anything. So hopefully this is coming, um, and that's really all to say about that. Again, not much in episode 12 about the money pit, except that in episode 12, it ends with a war room conference call with the guys from Dumas, the mining company, the contracting company that is going to and has been excavating the garden shaft. The long and short of it is that they seem to finally be beyond their permitting issues and their governmental problems, and they can restart the project soon. In fact, as soon as episode 13, and that is exactly what we see at the beginning of episode 13, which is called All's Well, Dumas is back on the island and we get a lot of recapping of the garden shaft work and what might mean, uh, what it might all mean for the hunt before we see Rick and much of the team over there um, kind of making a big show out of the restarting of the project. Uh, again, that's really all we see here of the garden shaft. Um, that's all we see out of the money pit. Uh, until the very end of the episode when we see the beginning of the next phase of the garden shaft excavation, which includes working a hammer grab in the hole and starting to really clear it out. Now, my guess is, like many of these hammer grab things go, the next few episodes we're going to see a lot of Gary Drayton detecting and sifting through those spoils. Now, there is also another scene in episode 13 that relates to the money pit. So let's discuss that now. And that is a war room, what I call a crackpot session. Uh, uh, you know, that sound, I, I feel bad because crackpot makes it sound bad, but it's sort of my fun name for these things. Uh, and this is with a theorist named Brian Farrow. Mr. Farrow believes the, that, um, like many others, let's be honest, that Nolan's cross holds the key to finding where the treasure is. He believes the cross uses what is known as sacred geometry, which is a concept used 
for thousands and thousands of years by many, many different religions all over the world. I'm not going to dive too deep into it. It is a very complicated kind of subject. It's very deep, very layered. Um, It would take hours. Probably an entire podcast can be devoted just to the idea of sacred geometry. And even trying to make sense of this for you in a short time would really kind of make my head explode. So if you want to learn more about it, go ahead and learn about it. Um, What he's talking about, at least in this regard, is certainly legit in my mind. The long and short here is that Mr. Farrow shows them some calculations He relates all of them to these lines found in the cross that all point to a spot in the money pit just a few feet from, wait for it, wait for it, you guessed it, the garden shaft. Probably the least surprising thing I've seen on this show in a very, very long time. A theorist coming with a theory that relates to the garden shaft. How convenient. Now, I think the first thing that came to everyone's mind, like I said, was exactly the same thing that came to Craig Tester's mind because he looked over at Rick and said, quote, we should have had him here a few years ago. Would have saved us a lot of time. Totally true, Craig. Would have saved you a lot of money, too, especially if he ends up being right. Ginger on the Patreon agreed when she said, uh, quote, where were his calculations 10 years ago? It's a great question, Ginger. It's almost as if when they knew the garden shaft was going to be a thing here that the show went looking for some theorist or theory out there relating to it so that they can kind of ratchet up the intrigue. I'm not saying that's what they did. I don't know. But it certainly comes off that way. Let's be honest, right? I mean, let's 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 be let's be reasonable here now. Steve on the Patreon was a lot more optimistic about all this. He said, quote, numbers can tell us all sorts of stories, sometimes incorrect ones, but someone put those rocks there for a reason. And you know what, Steve? I'm sure you're correct. You know, yeah, maybe somebody did place those rocks there. Um, you know, it's <laughs> it's strange to me that Nolan's Cross has been... Um, basically gone unexamined by the team for all of these years. I mean, every once in a while we get it here and there, but uh, considering how intriguing it is and how many theories have talked about it, it's amazing that we haven't really gone in, dug these rocks up, got a geologist in, you know, whatever, to actually try this stuff out and see what we're talking about here. Um, But we haven't. Uh, And, you know, the other thing is um, there are two things, let me say this, that really bug me besides the whole convenient nature of the timing of the scene, about what we're seeing here. One, the cross is a geometric object, right? It has right angles. You can make lines and circles and squares and triangles all over the place, including these angles. You can make these lines point to the swamp. You can make them point to the money pit. You can make them point to Smith's Cove. You can have them intersect almost wherever you like. For crying out loud, we've seen people on this show point lines from Nolan's Cross to places all over the world, off the island, halfway around the globe, even million miles away, millions of miles away up in the cosmos. And that leads me to my second issue with this, which I guess is related. Uh, Mr. Farrow is really just the latest theorist to arrive with the idea that Nolan's Cross is actually pointing somehow to the location of the treasure. Again, off the top of my head, I can think of at least four others, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, right? They can't all be correct. Most of them have to be incorrect. And until we dig at this spot that he points at um, to the guard, you know, in the garden shaft, there's no reason to believe that Mr. Farrow is any closer to the truth 
than any of the others who I guess we can say now we've disproven if we believe in Mr. Pharaoh's, right? So they get these theorists in, they kind of wave at it a little bit. They don't really disprove it or put any of these away. And that is the kind of annoying part of it. But alas, uh, even though he gave us an X on the map, there is no digging that's going to happen anytime soon. As the narrator tells us that the spot he's referring to is way too close to the work being done in the garden shaft to drill there um, while the work is ongoing. So we'll have to wait. Uh, now, Pharaoh closes the crackpot session by saying he believes this must have been done by the Knights Templar. He has nothing really but conjecture and what I would call wishful thinking to believe this or not, nothing really backing this theory. Again, many religions used uh, many different types of sacred geometry um, and there's no, no other reason to think it was the Templars other than that's what he would like it to be. But let me end the segment by saying this. As for, I've done all of this, uh, you know, <laughs> all of this poo-pooing of the theory here, which I tend to do a lot on this podcast, but I hope this man is right. Like all of these theories, I hope he's right. I might not sound that way here. I might sound like I don't believe in them, but I can tell you honestly, I am rooting for something like this to be right. I mean, aren't we all? How cool would that be? Let's be honest. All right, let's head over to Lot 5. In Episode 12, we get some additional analysis of the suspected Roman coin found on Lot 5 earlier in the season. Alex uh, Lagina and Doug Kroll take this coin over to the University of New Brunswick to be examined by Dr. Krista Brousseau, who we have seen do this kind of work many, many times before. We're going to see her in both of these episodes, I believe. And she does on the coin what's called laser ablation in order to get sort of a chemical makeup of what the metal is inside the coin. And that'll help you pinpoint place of origin and use and maybe even a time frame. The results tell her that the metal used in this is from the originates in the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal and Europe. And for some reason, I wasn't able to pick up um, why this convinced everyone it was a Roman coin because they went from Iberian to it must be Roman. I don't know why. She didn't really give a dating as far as I know. Um, again, I found it all kind of confusing. Um, my conclusion is we really didn't get a very good idea of what the doctor was saying. And instead, it got chopped up in editing um, to kind of make us think she was sure it was Roman. But, it, you know, just from the way they left out a lot of information, I'm not so sure she really is certain it was Roman. Certain it's from Iberia, from the Iberian Peninsula, that's for sure. There is um, a strange exchange between Jack Begley and Craig Tester uh, where when they bring this coin back to the war room and talk about the results where Jack asks if such a coin could have been part of a Templar treasure. Craig then answers yes. And man, that seems like a lot of way over speculation on everyone's part. So just to get a better idea of what I mean, um, and also to circle back to the Gary Drayton and these type of things that we find here, I want to read to you a great message I got from Twitter from a friend of mine. His name is Gary Morgan. He hosts a baseball podcast, a great one too, called the Pirates Fan Forum. He hosts other, hosts other things as well. Uh, great baseball guy. He put it best to me when he wrote me this. He said, Dave, I've really been enjoying the show. I'm not really vocal about how into Oak Island mystery I am, but hey, I'm a Pirates fan. I believe in the improbable, right? 
On this episode, I'm frustrated by all the suppositions surrounding the one-off coin. For instance, if I were to die today, for some reason people thought I had some big treasure buried in my yard, I can't imagine what they'd think of my collection of coins from all over the world my dad gathered while in the Navy and passed on to me. I've carried these coins with me everywhere I've moved for 25 years now and know for a fact I lost one that I used to carry in my pocket as a good luck charm. It could mean anything. And it's a certainly cool find, but man, I don't like the quote-unquote science of letting it have anything to do with setting or expanding the timeline. Regardless, love that show and yours. Thanks for letting me vent. And I responded to Gary by saying, you know what? Or I'm sorry, there's two Garys going on here. I responded to Gary Morgan by saying, quote, when I look back at the years Gary Drayton has spent on the island, I'm starting to feel his inclusion has been as much of a distraction as it has been helpful. Now, I know that's sacrilege to say for some fans of the show, but let me explain what I mean. I don't mean he isn't a great character and he isn't really good on television, but sometimes I feel like the theories he comes up with have dominated the show and these things that he finds have dominated the show in favor of things like history and theory. And I personally would much rather have more history and theory and less ox shoes and nails and coins that could have just been dropped. I mean, and if you're going to tell me that this coin finds, you know, is something amazing, that this is a Roman, rare Roman coin that, I mean, I don't even know what you would say, but this is what usually happens, right? It, what usually happens is we find something, we get some idea of what it is, we don't really know what it is, and then it's just sort of left out there. And my criticism of all this is not the coin. It's, this itself is kind of a cool coin, I guess. But it's that Gary's work seems to have taken over the entire show. And I feel that it would, if they would edit it down a little bit <laughs> and not feel this compulsion to show us all the mundane artifacts and they show us that, you know, if they do that, perhaps more time would be spent on things the fans would want to see and... If they only show the stuff that's really cool, it would add more weight to the things we actually do get to see, right? If they only show us stuff that we really, really find intriguing, um, you know, the cool stuff, the lead bail seal, uh, that Roman coin from a couple of weeks ago or whatever that coin was that we had on there. It seems to me at uh, the lead cross, right? I mean, there's so many things he's found. He usually finds a couple every year, but we seem to spend a lot of time on stuff that just sort of gets, oh, well... Maybe it's Roman, maybe it's not. Could it have been treasure? Sure, but we don't really know. I mean, I, I don't know. It just seems for every everything that we that we like that is really intriguing, we get a half a dozen ox shoes and old nails. You know, am I making sense? Anyway, this is not a criticism of Gary's inclusion on the show. It's an it's a criticism of the way it's presented to us. Anyway. Let's finish up with Lot 5 here. Uh, during episode 13, we get a couple more examples of what I mean by this stuff with Gary. Gary and Peter are detecting over there, and they pull out what looks like an old button. It's impossible to tell what it is and who might have used it because it's so dirty and corroded. Then later, they find what I can only describe as an unidentifiable piece of old scrap metal, right? Now, Gary tries to offer up theories, which he always does, on what these things could be. But let's be honest, there isn't much to any of this. Um, uh, I mean, how could he possibly identify them in the state they're in, right? And this is, again, what I mean. Perhaps more detail and more discussion in the, you know, for this episode in particular, in the crackpot session, 
for other episodes in the past and Corey and Maul over at the giving him a chance to talk a little bit more about what this stuff could be, uh, you know, would have been more interesting to the viewers. But the editors just seem to be really determined now to find something, anything in every episode um, that we get scenes like this that we could easily have skipped. Now, if they go back to these things later on and find out this is part of the treasure, cool. I'll be wrong about that particular item, but I don't think I'm wrong about my rant in, uh, you know, on the larger issue, you know, of the many other things we've seen over the years that, you know, that we never see or hear from again. I hope I'm making my point on this. Uh, again, this has nothing to do with Gary. It only has to do with what I think are editing choices and what I think all of us here uh, would hope would you know make for a better a better television show. So let's now discuss one of my favorite recent projects. That is Lot 26. This is this old well, apparently, and located right off the beach. Uh, Laird Niven, Helen Sheldon, and Gary Drayton start off with Jack Begley at the start of uh, episode 12. And we see a map of the area here, which if you stop and look at it, and I'll try to put a picture on the Facebook page for us, where it's marked Old Breakwater right off the beach here. It's interesting how they never discussed the presence of this Old Breakwater in either episode. Never talked about what this old breakwater might mean for all this. It's strange. Now, keep in mind, the reason why this is important is because one of the things we've been saying is that the, um, the it's a strange spot for the well because it's right by this pond, but the road runs right through there. So that might explain some of what that is, especially if you have this old breakwater uh, then you know that this might have been an area where people were pulling boats into for some reason or another, right? I mean, again, it's very strange. The, the road is not there from the beginning, and you have to keep in mind that uh, whoever it was that made this well, then this well would probably have been close to the beach, although the water level would have been further out because water levels were lower back then. Uh, so, but there's no discussion about any of this, even though we know that there is possibly an old breakwater there. So let's just keep this in mind as the project plays out over the remainder of the season. It was fascinating to see that. There's an interesting quote from Laird Niven here when he says, the biggest, quote, the biggest mystery about this well is the location. Seems the strangest place to have a well. And then he adds, what led people here? Now, this is why I love Laird so much. And I'm sure at some point in time, these questions we've had just now about the road and the old breakwater, he's discussed and he's thought about. Why haven't we heard any of that? Interesting. These are things we want to find out, Laird. We're with you on that one. <laughs> so Gary goes metal detecting with Peter Fernetti, and he finds what he calls an old pipe tamper. And then two things he thinks are hinges of some kind. There's a lot of silliness from the narration here about the mysterious Samuel Ball and stuff drives me nuts. And there's also the other thing that drives me nuts. He, they call the hinge ancient. Um, seriously, the writers need to look up the word ancient. They really do. Anyway, I digress. Later on, Doug Kroll and Scott Barlow bring these hinges up to blacksmithing expert Carmen Legg to have a look. And he says they aren't hinges, but instead are parts of an old bush site. And weirdly, they're exactly the same part broken off of two different sides. 
Uh, Carmen says they are from the mid-1600s, which is pretty interesting since these are essentially farm tools, right? Things used to, used to really to clear land and stuff. And I'm not sure who would be clearing land on Oak Island at that time. But if Carmen's leg is off by only just a few years, then these are exactly the kinds of tools one would expect to find on Oak Island from that period. Because uh, it was largely used just for farmland for many, many, many years. And on that note, I was fascinated also by a little admission from the narration here when they tell us that, yes, indeed, Oak Island was inhabited long before the discovery of the money pit in 1795. They don't usually tell us that. They usually try to push this theory that the discovery was made when three boys went to an uninhabited island to find mysterious lights. Anyway, we're going to get back to this in episode 13. So just keep that in mind that they say here that uh, there were people, admitted here there were people on the island, living on the island before 1795. So let's get in episode 13. Laird and Jack are joined by Helen Sheldon at the, at this well again. And now we've got a plan. We're seeing it in action, right? The plan is to start pumping it out and get a look at what might be down there. Jack starts up this little portable generator and we get a good look at the rock work here and if there was any doubt before in your mind or mine that this was a man-made structure and a primitive one at that, those doubts were dispelled by what we got a gut here, the what, these looks that we got in this. This is indeed man-made. It certainly looks very old and strange to have it here. It's fascinating. Anyway, while the water is being drained, Jack is pulling out buckets of mud to be dried out and then sifted through later on. So later in the episode, Helen and Emma uh, Culligan are sifting through these buckets. Uh, I guess there are the, we call these the spoils, so to speak. And Emma pulls out what looks like a big old nail, a hand forged nail for sure. Both she and Helen, who are experts in this, think that it is old from the 18th century, most likely. So Emma, along with Peter Frenetti and Charles Barkhouse, head uh, back to St. Mary's University in Halifax to let Dr. Krista Brousseau have a look at this nail, as well as those pieces of uh, the bush scythe found on Lot 5. Now, remember when I talked about how in episode 12, the narration admitted that there were indeed people living on Oak Island before the discovery of the money pit? Well, it would appear that they did not give this information, this little factoid, to Peter Fornetti, who says here that the dating of these artifacts they're bringing to Dr. Brousseau could, quote, prove people were on the island before the money pit was discovered. Peter, that has been proven many, many times over. Anyway, the doctor says the nails contain phosphorus, which, po which points to its origin uh, from most likely the 1600s to the late 1700s. So it is old for sure. But the thing that comes to mind is that this nail would have to have been dropped in this well, right? Since it clearly was not used to make it. I go back to what Ginger said. Now, we first thought this was some sort of 11th century thing. But Ginger asked about the well, could this be related to the Duke d'Anville? Uh, certainly this dating of this nail seems to fit right in there, Ginger. So keep that in mind, right? Um, so anyway, I'm digressing a little bit here. Uh, the thing that comes to my mind, as I said, is that this must have been dropped in. We know it was not used to build this, right? We know that for sure. And... We also know for sure that despite what Mr. Frenetti might think, that there were indeed people living and working on the island here during this time frame that's talking about here. So, I mean, when you really think about it, how hard is it to imagine a nail being in the pocket of somebody who's, uh, you know, in the 1700s walking around the island, working a little bit, found this feature that 
predates this person, was curious about what it could mean, leaned over just enough for the nail to slide out of its pocket and into the water. Boy, that's happened to me so many times over the years. Um, If we believe Dr. Spooner's theory that this well was constructed in, what did he say, the 12th century or something like that, then how could this nail possibly tell us who created it, right? It doesn't. It simply it simply can't. All it can tell us is that it's there. We don't know what it was used for or who used for who was used who used it and uh, nothing like that. So again, we're at this point where we've got a really cool find and we present this to us as this really cool find, but in the end, I don't think it really helps solve the mystery in any way I can tell you. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of the Dig in Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head on over to patreon.com slash island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Use the username at Dave McBride Music. If you'd like to help out the podcast in another way, not want to do the money thing, then please feel free. Go help us out by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thank you so much to everyone who's done that. Um, I really do appreciate it. Don't forget you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I'll probably answer it right here on the podcast. So if you don't want it read aloud, make a note of that. Well, folks, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.